0: Would you pray with me before we begin? Oh God, our hearts our hearts are heavy. Lord, sometimes all we can do is be, is be silent before you. But God, would you be merciful and, and burst forth in our hearts to remind us of your grace, to remind us that We are not those who mourn without hope. Oh God, would you calm us in these moments and help us to see see and receive what you have in your word for us. God, that we may love you more, that we may love one another more, that we may hold on to that hope tighter. And that doing that, we would be conformed to the image of your son. God, would you do this for your glory that your name may be esteemed among us and among those around us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I've heard people ask several times, just in the last few years, what would we ever do, what did we ever do before Google? Specifically, what did we ever do before Google or Siri on our phones? It seems that we've kind of built up a tolerance and an expectation of instant information. Now, one of the kinds of information that is readily available to us, right in our pockets, is statistics. And these can be statistics of any kind, but I'm thinking of sports statistics. Now, if, if you want to know Jim Tomey's slugging percentage from his 2002 season with the Cleveland Indians... If you're really good, you can find that out in less than 10 seconds. Now, in the case of sports statistics, what did we ever do before Google? Well, we had something called baseball cards. <laughs> These 2 and a half inch by three and a half inch little cardboard cards came on the scene during the turn of the 20th century, right when the sport was taking off and right when photography was taking off. Now, baseball cards became commodities to trade, and with any booming business big corporations took notice and they began to sponsor baseball cards now as card companies tried to find an edge on one another one of the unique appeals to cards became having player statistics on the reverse side they started doing this in the 1920s and they've been statistics have been a mainstay ever since now you may not even care about baseball cards but i love baseball cards I think it's just something unique about them. There's something mesmerizing just about flipping through them and, and collecting them. Now, even though they've fallen out of the mainstream, when there's a collector's item that has been around as long as baseball cards, some of them are bound to be worth a lot of money. Now, indeed, the oldest and most rare cards can be worth thousands, even millions of dollars. Think of that, a little piece of cardboard worth millions of dollars. Now the most valuable baseball card, sort of the holy grail of baseball cards, is that of Honus Wagner. He's a Pittsburgh Pirates Hall of Famer, and this card was printed from 1909 to 1911. It was printed by the American Tobacco Company, and apparently either Wagner didn't like how much money they were giving him, or he didn't like that his card would help sell cigarettes to kids. But he told the company to stop printing the card, and by the time they stopped, only 50 or between 50 and 200 were distributed to the public. So what we have with this card is a unique history. It's of a Hall of Fame player. It's really, really old, over 100 years old, almost 100 years old, and it's rare. So these cards, one of them in particular, have been sold several times, including most recently in 2016 for $3.12 million dollars. So if you get a card that's this expensive, you better know that it's authentic. And so there have been plenty of controversy over these cards. There have been copycats, and they found it out by a special water test, and the card disintegrated. There have been those who have tried to increase the value of this card by making the edges more crisp. And there's even been a group who claims to have an authentic card, but no one can prove that it is. So Authenticity. When it comes to the gospel, the Galatians were beginning to believe the Judaizers, this group of false teachers that came in, and claimed that Paul's gospel was inauthentic. And as Paul opens his letter, he goes on the defense to proclaim that the gospel he preached was indeed authentically from God. And with that, we turn to our passage of Scripture, of Galatians 1, Verses 11 to 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They, They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The reason that Paul gives the Galatians for why they should believe that the gospel he preached is from God. Those reasons are in fact the same reasons we can give others that the gospel is indeed authentically from God. We believe that the gospel is authentically from God because it glorifies him alone at every step. And we'll develop this in three points this morning. Beginning in verses 11 to 12. That God is glorified in the gospel's beginning, its source, where it comes from. In verses 13 to the first part of 16, we see that God is glorified in the gospel's impact and the transformation it has on our hearts. And finally, the second half of 16 through verse 24, we'll see that God is glorified in the gospel's display before the lives of others. So our first point, God is glorified in the gospel's beginning. The very first word of verse 11 is four. and That means it connects us to what comes previously. Now what did come previously? What did Paul just finish communicating in, his opening, in the opening of his letter? We observed several themes last week that carry on throughout Galatians. What is most prominent in the first ten verse, verses is Paul's desire for the Galatians. That comes in verse 3. Do you remember what that is? Grace and peace. Paul desires grace and peace for the Galatians. He explains shortly but powerfully what grace and peace are and how God in Christ accomplishes them. In his grace, Jesus gave himself. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins, that we may be delivered from this present evil age and have peace with God. Grace and peace. But while the new age has dawned in Christ's resurrection, the present evil age endures. And this is evidenced by the Galatians veering from the sole basis of grace. Grace. And this veering is brought on by false teachers that have come from the, to, from the outside, the Judaizers. And these, these teachers essentially said that to become a Christian, you had to become Jewish. This situation explained much of Paul's tone in the letter. And he is astonished that this is happening. Namely, that they have the wondrous grace of Christ before them and they are going back to leaning on their inadequate selves for peace with God. Not only is he astonished, but he is defensive. One of the main reasons why the Judaizers have been successful in diverting the Galatians is because they have undermined Paul's apostleship. They claim that Paul preached the law that was not that they preached the law that was not required for salvation in order to please people. But Paul preached grace. Paul preached Christ alone, through faith alone, leaning on him alone for salvation. Not to please people. No, he endured persecution for it. He preached grace alone. He preached Christ alone. Because all other paths lead to death. So we jump into verse 11 and Paul offers a further defense in these verses. He's building a case that the gospel he preached is from God as opposed to being from man. He didn't receive it from any man, nor did he, nor, nor did any man teach it to him. And this is such a big deal because of what the Judaizers were claiming. The Judaizers preached such a different message from Paul that they had to discredit Paul's reputation. He said the gospel was Paul's invention or imagination. But Paul counters, he said he did not receive it from the apostles in Jerusalem. He did not twist the, gospel purpo- the gospel's purposes for his own desires. Indeed, the gospel is not man's message, but it is God's message. And that is what Paul is trying to defend here. Because a message of salvation that comes from man will ultimately glorify man. Whether it's the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism, or even the requirements of the Judaizers here, when the message is from man, the source of salvation becomes man's accomplishment, not God's gift. So Paul didn't receive some warped version of the Christian message. Indeed, he explains that he received the gospel through the risen Christ explaining it to him. And we read of Paul's initial encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. This comes in Acts chapter 9. This was an absolutely incredible and unforgettable moment in Paul's life. And we see that even throughout Paul's ministry, he refers back to it and explains it time and again. This is what Acts chapter 9 says, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is what he was sent out to do. Now as he went out on his way, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate ate, nor drank. This gospel is from God, and it is for man. Jesus appeared to Paul, and Paul believed. In Paul's case, he received a direct revelation from God. But what does that mean for us, that the gospel... Is God's message, not man's message. It means that if God is to make himself known, he must speak. And he has spoken, and God still speaks. While we may not have a Damascus Road experience, God has still made himself known. In times past, the book of Hebrews opens God has spoken by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken in his Son. It is through the word, friends. It is through the word, both written, God the Son taking on flesh, and incarnate. Excuse me, God's word incarnate, God the Son taking on flesh, and God's word written, God's word in the scriptures, that we come to know God. If God is to make himself known, he must speak. He has spoken, and he still speaks. There's a popular illustration of how people come to know the truth or come to know God. They say it's six blind men in a room trying to describe an elephant. Now one touches the side of the elephant, noticing the smoothness, and concludes that the elephant is like a wall. Another touches the elephant's trunk and notices how round it is and concludes that the elephant is like a snake. Another puts his hand on the tusk and determines that an elephant is sharp, like a spear. Others notice its height. Others notice its width, its ear, and its tail. And they all come to different conclusions. Now there's a wise man in the room who isn't blind. And he tells them that the elephant is a big animal. And that they must put their knowledge together to find the whole truth. What do we think of this story? Well, it's based on a logical flaw. You see, if the wise man were also blind, then there would be no story. If we claim to know the parts, then we must know the whole. In other words, they have to know that it is an elephant in the first place. To even say that that it is an elephant. But one thing we can affirm about this illustration is that all of us, including Paul, are indeed blind. But what is something that this illustration doesn't account for? Is that what if the elephant speaks? This is what Paul is saying. If God speaks, it changes everything. The gospel is God's good news for man. It is his revelation of who he is, who we are, and how we are made right with him by faith in Jesus. So even from the beginning of receiving the gospel, glory belongs to God. Though we were blind and though we were sinners, God made himself known. He revealed himself and he died for us. So friends, if all glory belongs to God in every step of the gospel, then we're going to have a consistent application throughout. And that's praise and thanksgiving. We praise and thank God that even though we were blind because of our sin, that he did not leave us that way. We thank God that he has revealed himself and praise him that he has made the way of forgiveness through the cross of Christ. Secondly, if the gospel is indeed God's message for man. God's message. Then let's be confident that Christ is the sure foundation and the rock upon which we stand. This confidence is built on Jesus. We are confident that He accomplished payment for sin because we are confident that He is no longer in the grave. For the seeker who may be listening, Our confidence in Jesus' resurrection is not vacuous. It is, in fact, the only solid explanation for the historical events surrounding Jesus' crucifixion and the spread of Christianity. We are confident that we have a message from God. And we are confident of that because of Christ, because he is no longer dead. But we are not just confident in our message from God. But we are also discerning and making sure our message is God's message. Friends, we have been entrusted with a message from the king. We've been given a mission to proclaim it as his ambassadors. Think of that privilege. So, will we faithfully proclaim what the king says? Or will we proclaim what we say? This means, friends, that we need to know our Bibles, that we need to know the gospel. Our confidence that God has spoken and that he still speaks in his word is why we believe preaching should be biblical. When we preach and teach the Bible, we should be exposing what it says, not imposing what we say. If God has really spoken in his word, and if God still speaks in his word, then why would we say anything else? Friends, Preach the gospel that is from God. Preach that God is holy, that man is sinful and accountable to God, that Christ is perfect and died for the forgiveness of sins, and that we must respond by turning from our sins and turning towards God in faith in what Jesus has done on our behalf. This is the gospel in its inception That God is speaking and revealing. He has done this. He gets glory for this. And we come to our second point. That God is glorified in the gospel's impact. Now Paul is still on the defense that his gospel is from God. And his first reason was rooted in the fact that the risen Jesus appeared to him. He received it directly from the Lord. Now he points to the inner transformation that God caused in his heart. In other words, only God could have brought him from what he was to what he became. So who was Paul? He gives a brief sketch beginning in verse 13. And he indicates that even they have heard of who he used to be. Even the Galatians knew of Paul's former life. And Paul's former life was in Judaism. This word means the Judean way of belief and life. Paul's not saying that he's no longer an ethnically Jew. He is explaining his beliefs and actions of his former life. And what was his former life in Judaism? Well, we look again to verse 13. It consisted of violent persecution of the church of God. A violent persecution. And we talk about we talk about the freedoms we have in America. We see Paul's former life. Violent persecution of the church of God. Violent persecution. It's a reminder, friends, it's so easy. It's so easy to skim through scripture. I don't know about you, I, I've never been I've never been beaten because I believe in Jesus. I've never been spat upon. Um, I've never been cursed out. I've never been whipped. I've never been arrested because of that. I'm talking about violent persecution. Paul was a terrorist of Christians. That's what he was. It, he wasn't just a, "I want to annoy Christians. But he, he was, I want to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. We ask ourselves, where do we hear that language today? That's what Paul was. Does this not show how merciful God is? And we know from the book of Acts that Paul oversaw the martyr of Stephen. We also know that he went from house to house, seeking to arrest and attack Christians. Paul even says in Acts 26.10 that every time he got a chance to cast his vote to put a Christian to death, he did it. Think of the hate in this man's heart. If that weren't enough, Paul says in verse 14 that he was successful in Judaism. He was a young prodigy. Not only was he diametrically opposed to Christianity, but he had everything to lose if he became a Christian. It'd be like if LeBron James retired after his rookie season. He attributes all of this, his persecution, his success, to him being zealous for the traditions of his fathers. These were the teachings and the way of life promoted by the Pharisees which both Jesus and Paul said and proved that these traditions were not equal and were not faithful to the Old Testament scriptures. Indeed, the Pharisees traded the heart of the law for the legalistic keeping of the externals of the law. The point is, Paul and his persecution, Paul and his success, this man was greatly misguided. His zeal was not for God. His zeal was for maintaining tradition and culture. This was Paul's former life. A young and -and up-and-coming Pharisee who was sold out on climbing the ladder of Judaism and persecuted those who deviated from this path. All of the details of his former life served to magnify the power of God's grace. Indeed, it is a dark picture in verses 13 and 14. However, there's a glorious shift that comes in verse 15. And this is just like Paul. This is just like Paul to hammer his readers with bad news. Only so that the good news will shine brighter. We see this in Romans 3. We see this in Ephesians 2. The bad news of who we are. But the good news of who God is. When looking at God's transforming grace in verses 15 and 16, we see how God transformed Paul and we see why God did it. The first step, Paul says, is that God set him apart before he was born. Nothing inside of Paul would indicate that he would turn to Christ. It was God's action from the very beginning. God then called Paul. Why did God call Paul? Did God call Paul because of something that Paul did? How could he? Look at what Paul was. This call was solely by grace. It was God's gift. It was God's unmerited favor to Paul. And it's the same with us. Friends, we do not love God because we first loved him. No, because he first loved us. So the God who set Paul apart and called him by grace revealed his son to him. The text literally says revealed his son in him in his heart to change that hateful man Paul. It is similar to the call of Jeremiah. And it shows that what God sets out to do, he will accomplish. Jeremiah 1:5 says God is saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God called Paul from the very beginning. It was his work. Why did God do this? Well, it's sort of like peeling back the layers of an onion here. We see in the text that God called Paul or saved Paul so that he would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now this doesn't mean Paul exclusively preached the Gentiles. We see in Acts, as he went around to cities, he first went to Jews. But God did call him outside the bounds of geographic Israel. So this is kind of the first reason, but we look underneath this reason. God didn't need Paul. Paul to spread the gospel among the gentiles. God chose to do this. And he chose to do it according to his own good pleasure. Paul says God was rev- was pleased to reveal his son in me. God shows his mercy. His mercy. We remember what mercy is. Mercy is not owed by God or else it would not be mercy. God shows his mercy as passages such as Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 declare. God shows his mercy according to the counsel of his will, to his good pleasure, because it is not owed. He shows his mercy to the praise of his glory. Paul sums this up well when he's writing to his protege, Timothy. We remember he calls himself the chief of sinners. I couldn't imagine how Paul wrestled with his sin after he came to faith. But he attributes everything to God. He writes in 1 Timothy 1.16 that he received mercy as the chief of sinners. Why? So that the glory of Jesus might be put on display. God set Paul apart and called him. And he did so to display his glory, to display his mercy, to display his grace. It is God's work, and God gets to praise for it. So we remember the big picture. There are a lot of details in these verses. When looking at Paul's life, there is one explanation for his transformation of heart, and that is the work of God. The gospel is from God because it is he alone who can turn a heart of stone into a heart that beats for him. And we see see God's work, and I love this, we see God's work in the shift of focus from verses 13 to 14 to verses 15 to 16. Notice in verses 13 to 14, Paul says, this is my former life. I persecuted the church. I was advancing. I was zealous. Then in verse 15, Paul says, but God set me apart. God called me in his grace. And God revealed his son to me. I was sinful, but God, oh, he was merciful. A huge trend today is to flip, rundown, crummy houses. Entire businesses are based on this. And according to HGTV, running a house-flipping business is one of the keys to having a successful marriage. What happens is that they'll take one of these run-down, crummy houses. They'll gut it. They'll rewire it. They'll kind of do all the boring stuff. They'll usually change the floor plan, you know, knock down non-load-bearing walls. They'll fix the roof. They'll bring a new carpet, new paint, new furniture. They'll add sort of this modern rustic flair that you find at Target. And at the end of every one of these flipping shows... There's a big reveal, and they always go to commercial right before the big reveal. The homeowners see their house, and they're stunned. They walk inside just like with this joy of children, and they see every little nook and cranny of of the transformation. And finally, after maybe probably 15 minutes or so of doing this, they sit down with the house flippers, and they said, wow, look. Look at what you guys have done. When God saves a sinner, when he saved Paul, he sees the run-down sinful heart and he says, I'm taking that one back. And he did this at a high price. He did this at the death of his son to buy us Back. The gospel is God's work. It is his work of grace to redeem the sinner and call him to a new life. Thus, friends, we come to the same application as before. As we thank and praise God that he revealed himself to us, blind sinners, we also thank and praise him that he has called us by his grace, that he has transformed us, that he has saved us at a high cost. Glory be to God that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And when we see the transformed heart of Paul as evidence that the gospel is God's work, we must ask ourselves, how has the gospel impacted us? See, Christianity is more than a set of intellectual facts to give affirmation to. Indeed, the book of James says even the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God and they still shudder. Faith in Christ is following Him. So, how has the gospel of Jesus transformed what you value? How has He transformed how you view other people? How has He brought you closer? to himself. Asking these kinds of questions are key to developing our own testimony so that like Paul, we may look at our former life and then give glory to God for his work and what he has done in our hearts. It is not that we are perfect, but friends, if we have come to faith in Christ, we are bought by him and God is continually working in us. But let us also encourage ourselves with God's work in Paul's heart. As the old hymn says, ponder anew what the Almighty can do. What person, humanly speaking, was further from Jesus than Paul? Even more than Paul, it is equally impossible for any of us to come to God on our own strength. If God saved Paul, if God saved you, dear brother, dear sister, then he can save anyone. So you may think of that person in your life. Go ahead and think of that person in your life. Think of that person in your life who you love, who is a family member, maybe a longtime friend. Think of that person and the last thing he or she would ever do Is turn to Jesus in faith. Do we have faith that God can save that person? Do we have faith in God's grace? Friends, God saved Paul, God saved the terrorist. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What he sets out to do, he will accomplish. So be faithful, friends. For God brings about faith through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Preach the gospel. God is mighty to save. So God gets the glory at every step of the gospel. First, how he brings it to us. Secondly, how he changes us in it. And finally, as we see in our last point, he gets glory when that change is displayed before the lives of others. This begins in the second half of verse 16. And the final section includes a lot of details. Paul notes his traveling over the last several years. To kind of help us understand it, I want us to notice two bookends. The first is, comes in the second half of verse 16, and the second comes at the very end in verse 24. And the first bookend is that I did not immediately consult with anyone. And we remember Paul's main argument that he's defending himself, that his gospel is not substandard, that he did not receive it from the Jerusalem apostles and twist it for his own desires. Indeed, Paul couldn't have done this because he lays out his own travels of after he received the gospel. He was so confident after Jesus appeared to him that he went out and preached. He was so confident that in verse 17, He immediately went on a missionary journey. He went to Arabia, which was a political region, most likely referring to the Nabataean kingdom near Damascus. And this gap fits nicely between Acts chapter 9, verse 25, and verse 26. A three year period that Paul is preaching the gospel, and Paul has run out of town. And finally, after three years of being a Christian, That is when he first comes to Jerusalem. That is when he meets Peter and James. But he only meets two apostles. And how long does he stay there? He only stays there two weeks. Not enough time to be shaped by them. Certainly enough time to talk about Jesus. But not enough time to be influenced substantially. But finally, after two weeks, he went off to Cilicia, to Tarsus, to preach the gospel even more. So Paul is saying, I received this gospel directly from God. I wasn't distorting the Jerusalem apostles' gospel. I didn't spend enough time with them. I didn't know them well enough. It's the point of the bookend in verse 16. That he did not immediately consult with anyone. But nonetheless, his gospel was authentically from God. But then we see the other bookend, and we notice the Judean church. How else else do the Galatians know that Paul's gospel was really God's work? Well, it's because of the transformation in his life. And others recognize this. And this is what happens to the Judean church they didn't know him face to face. They never met him. At least not until several years later. But they did know something about Paul. And what did they know? He said, he who used to persecute us. He who used to persecute us. Once again, this is a point that we must not speedily read ahead of Scripture. Think of those who knew Christians, who were put to death because of Paul's work. Think of those in the Judean church who knew Stephen, whose martyr Paul oversaw. He persecuted us. They were well familiar with Paul's former life. They were well familiar with his mantra that he was set out to destroy Christianity, to wipe them off the face of the earth. They knew his former life. But what else did they know? Well, this persecutor turned into a preacher. The faith he once tried to destroy, their faith, he was now preaching and he now believed. They knew the darkness of Paul's former life. They saw how radical a transformation it was. And how else could they explain it? And it had to be God's work. So they glorify God. So when we look at the whole shelf of this section, we see on one end that Paul's gospel is authentically from God because he independently received it. He didn't need anyone else's verification. On the other end, it's authentically from God because it brought transformation and others recognized it. Christian testimonies are inspiring and powerful. As other Christians testify of God's grace in their lives, we are moved to worship God for what he has done. And we must remember that God deserves praise for every conversion, since faith in Christ is always a miracle of grace. Nonetheless, we realize that some conversions are simply more dramatic than others. And I think of one of them, you know, has been immensely encouraging to watch dispassers from the front the last couple of weeks, to see God's work around the world, even in the smallest corners of the world. And I think of a set of testimonies. And this happened in Albania. It began with a girl from Albania named Prinda. David, a missionary to Albania, led Prinda to faith in Jesus. And Teresa, another missionary, discipled Prinda. Prinda's family did not take her new faith very well. Prinda's father, Mark, began to beat her. He threatened to kill Teresa, a missionary. He told his daughter that he would rather her be a prostitute than a Christian. Prinda's sister, Daba, ripped up Prinda's Bible. Think of getting saved and having to live with this. But Prinda persevered. And you know what God did? God saved her sister, Daba. Then God saved Prinda's nephew, Daba's son, Irviz. Finally, Ervis let his grandfather, Mark, Prinda's father, to faith in Jesus. Now this family loves these missionaries. They love their daughter, Prinda, we get the forgiveness that God has brought. And once more, God has called, caused Prinda's salvation to cause a chain reaction in Prinda's family. Starting with her, he has saved 40 more of her family members. We praise God for this work. We praise and thank God not just for his transforming grace in our lives, but also in the lives of others. Brothers and sisters, look around you. Each person here who has put their faith in Christ is a testimony to God's work and is an occasion to praise God for what he has done. Let us not take that for granted. So get to know one another. Get to know your testimonies. And praise God for what he has done. At the street level, the street level application, recognizing God's grace and saving others is the point of church membership. As a church, we affirm an individual's faith in Christ and the fruit God has borne in his or her life. We recognize that profession of faith when we baptize them, and we continually recognize one another's profession of faith when we partake in the Lord's Supper together together. That was not a full theology of church membership and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But the point is, when we look at the action of the churches in Judea, in verse 24, they said they glorified God because of God's work in Paul's heart. When we look at their action of glorifying God, we remember that even those routine actions, like church membership, Lord's Supper, baptism. Even those are occasions to glorify God for his grace and what he has done for us. So in closing, friends, we come full circle. We are reminded of Paul's argument at the beginning that his gospel is from God. And since it is from God, God gets the glory for its design and its accomplishment. Since the gospel is from God, he gets the glory in the transformation he brings through it since the gospel is from God, he gets the glory when we see that transformation displayed in the lives of others. So when the young Martin Luther was discovering this gospel of grace for the very first time, and he defended it to his mentor, this is what his mentor said. I like it well that the doctrine which you proclaim gives glory to God alone and none to man. For never... Too much glory can be given to God. Never can too much goodness be given to him. And never can too much mercy be ascribed to him. Luther responded in his writing. He said, These words of the worthy doctor comforted and confirmed me. The gospel is true because it deprives man of all glory, wisdom, and righteousness and turns over all honor to the creator alone. It is safer to attribute too much glory unto God than unto man. The gospel is from God, friends. It is his work. To him be the glory, all of it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise and we thank you. We praise and we thank you that you did what we never could do. We praise praise you that you have bought us with a price that, Lord, we cannot even fathom. The blood of God, the Son. And we praise you that this work is accomplished and that we can see it verified by the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to live in this praise and thanksgiving. Help us to be thankful for the grace you have wrought in our own hearts. And God, we ask that you would continue to make us new, that we would be lights that shine bright for your grace in a world that is very dark. God, would you do this for your own glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.